So let's read God's Word. It's in your bulletin on page 6 and uh, part of page 7. Now hear God's Word. We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose for them. For God knew His people in advance, and He chose them to become like His Son, so that His Son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, He called them to come to Him. And having called them, He gave them the right standing with Himself. And having given them right standing, He gave them His glory. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since He did not spare even His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, won't He also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for His own? No one. For God Himself has given us right standing with Himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And He is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean He no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the Scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that neither that nothing can separate us from the love from separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels or demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Well, these are uh, really amazing verses, and they come in chapter 8, at the very end of chapter 8. And if you've read through Romans, and I hope many of you have read through the whole book, you'll notice that chapter 8 is kind of a summary of not only uh, the verses that are immediately before these verses, 1 through 27, but also, I think, the entire book of Romans. And scholars, some scholars don't agree on that. They think it's just a summary of 8, but uh, others say it's all the way back to the very beginning Paul is asking, what do we say about these things? He's asking people to think deeply, something that Christians notoriously do not do. But he's asking us to think deeply about the things he has said throughout this book. What he has claimed 
to be the one thing that human beings need that they cannot provide for themselves, and that is righteousness, an everlasting righteousness before God, one that you cannot produce on your own. Human beings can't bring forth that righteousness. We broke that original covenantal righteousness that God had put into His creatures when He gave them the, or created them in the image of God. And Paul has gone to lengths to explain we sinned, humanity, the world is the way it is because we continue to sin every day. And we have no way to repair the damage we've done. So God comes, and in His grace, 100% plus nothing, He takes away the penalty of sin. This is in chapter 3 towards the end. In chapter 4, He explains that even the righteous Abraham needed to be justified by faith alone, not by his works. He could, Abraham could have claimed his righteousness because he was righteous and the father of the faithful, but he didn't do that. In 5 and 6, the Apostle Paul goes to lengths to explain that the power of sin, when you're unified with Jesus through baptism, which you could also, just as a plug for church membership, baptism has always been to connect you to the church. Not so you can just leave and go do whatever as an individual. It's to make you part of a community. So baptism was until modern times, that's what it was. You coming into the local church through that ritual and sacrament of holy baptism. And he says with that, power of sin is broken. And so we're rejoicing. We're saying, great, the power of sin is broken. But chapter 7 and part of chapter 8, he's telling us, even though the power of sin is broken, it's still present in this world. But God has given us the Holy Spirit. He's leading us through His Word and through His sacrament, through the means, what we call the means of grace, so that we can be connected to Him and not be under its power. We have the freedom, once again, to go against sin. And now it's not just us. The Holy Spirit is in us and leading us to break sin. So let's look at a few things. It's going to take a few weeks. I, I, I think we're going to spend some time in chapter 8, particularly these last few verses, because I'd like to sum everything up very good before we move into uh, chapter 9, where he goes in a little bit different direction, although it's all connected, and you'll see the connections, but we will take a, a time in these verses. We're going to look this morning at a few things. First of all, what we know. Paul makes a big deal about this throughout Romans. What we know. He's not talking about just knowledge. He's talking about a certainty. A knowledge. A kind of knowledge that connects what we mentally think about with everything else in us. We do not. Theologians have insisted good theologians over the years, that body, mind, soul, spirit, you cannot separate them. You can talk about them individually, but they are not three parts of a human being. Human beings are all spirit, all soul, all body. 
And these things are integrated so that we are one whole being created in the image of God. Now, because of sin, those things have been, have been, have been ravaged, if you will. And so we're talking about them sometimes in different ways. But he's saying that this knowledge that he's talking about is a knowledge that goes completely through our being. We know it absolutely and certainly. We know, here's one translation from uh, Kenneth Woost. We know with absolute knowledge that for those who are loving God, for those who are called ones, according to His purpose, all things are working together for good. So we're going to talk about what we know. Then secondly, we'll look at who we know, uh, which is uh, 29 through 30. Then Paul does something very interesting. He, He goes into rabbi mode, his teacher mode, and he starts asking questions. He asks five questions, and he has five answers. 31 through 35, easy to remember. One, two, three, four, five. And he asks these penetrating, probing questions that we should be thinking about and meditating on. And he answers each one. Spectacular. We'll look at those in a moment. And then finally, we'll look at nothing, nowhere, no how. There is nothing, nothing like R.C. Sproul used to say, nothing doesn't mean a little something. Nothing means nothing. And so we've got to see that every dimension in creation, time, space, physical world, spiritual world, nothing, no power, never can separate you from the love of Christ. And this short few verses, 11 verses that Paul is talking about, can present some of the greatest challenges that you and I experience in our daily Christianity. There's just no doubt about it. Assurance. Does God really love me? Don't raise your hand. I ask myself that question every day. And you say, gosh, Chuck, aren't you sure? No, I'm not sure. And the reason I'm not sure is because I'm still measuring God's love over against my behavior. What I do. And even though I'm very far along my spiritual journey up into the heights that many of you will never achieve, I'm way up here. I mean, really think about it. That's where we struggle. Does He really love me? Does He care? Can I sin my way out of His love? What part of my performance matters when it comes to Him loving me and accepting me? And when I mess up or the world goes off the rails and suffering comes, in fact, that's part of why He's even talking about this. Because He knows suffering's going to come. And he says, I don't compare. This is where he left off before these verses. I I cannot compare the suffering that we have now with the glory that will be revealed in us later. And this is where we live in that period where it is so hard to get our head around the suffering and the glory. So let's run through these quickly. We'll come back to them again uh, later in the week, but but I really want to bore down on this, and I, I do, I have brought John Calvin, because when you talk about predestination, and you can see his little head moves, so you watch, because when 
When I say election or predestination, his head will go up and down like this. And when I'm, when I'm speaking truth, he will be going like this. And if I make a mistake, he will do that. Very scary. So anyway, John, we love you, baby. I'm going to put him there. He's going to be watching the sermon along with you. Okay. What do we know? We know with absolute knowledge that those who are loving God, and, and a, as poor and paltry as our love can be at times, if you're a Christian and you come to the holy table on sacrament, you come to the Lord's table, then you are saying, some part of me loves God. I love Him. I don't know. I'm all messed up right now. But I still love Him. I'm coming anyway. For those who love God, for those who are called ones, he's saying those that God has reached out in His sovereignty and called you. This is not just calling, hey, out there. This is what we call effectual calling. It's calling with power behind it. That those people can rest assured that things are working together for good. One teacher said this, you won't necessarily, listen carefully, this is so important, you won't necessarily have better circumstances. In other words, your life may really not be that great. Some things, this is pure gold, folks, please listen, open your ears. Some things are bad in themselves. There are no silver linings. So we're not saying that bad things are good. We're not, gonna, we're not saying that God takes bad things and He's going to use them for good in your life. That is, that is heartbreaking to hear people say that. It's, it's hard to even hear people say it and they do it all the time. Tragedy will come. Somebody will come and use this verse like a bludgeon. Oh, you rejoice this bad thing. God's going to turn this for good. And that's not what Paul's getting at. You won't necessarily have better circumstances. Some things are just bad in themselves. They're just pure evil. But he will take bad things and somehow work out the end for good. Okay, there's a difference. It's subtle, but there's a difference. Paul is not saying bad things are good or even good for you. Listen carefully. He's not saying that. He is saying, he is saying God is good and He means good for you no matter what the circumstances are. He is good and He means good for you. And so when bad things come, you can be steady and and anchored and hold on. And, And maybe you're not. Maybe you're all over the place. Pray to God you have people around you that aren't going to bludgeon you with the bumper sticker theology and throw stuff out there that, that just hurts you and saying, well, gosh, you're telling me this bad thing is good? No, it's not good. It's bad. It's bad in itself. But trust Him. Let's trust Him together. We don't know all the ends and what's going on. We don't know. It's mysterious. It's awful. But we can go. We can make it. Because God is good. And He means good for us. The evil and the bad and the hard suffering and all that needs to be put in that place. God is good and means good for me. Yes? 
Okay, I hope, hope so. Listen to what Dr. Sproul says, R.C. It just, he puts it in beautiful. I can't improve it, so I'm just going to read it to you. Listen carefully. Put your thinking hats on. This does not mean that everything which happens to us is good in and of itself. Suffering is tragic, physical, evil. I am not supposed to say to another believer who is suffering, Rejoice! This is a wonderful benefit that you are experiencing here because it is working together for your good. We are not to praise God for the presence of suffering, particularly in the case of others, because that would lead us to do the same smug attitude that is so destructively manifest in Job's friends. If you've re- I'm reading Job right now. It's my my course of reading and Job's friends came and you know they were telling him that the suffering was his fault and that he he needed to look deep because there was some sin in his life (laughs) in spite of the fact that God had said everything good about Job never said anything bad about him rather if I see another suffering I must do everything in my power to alleviate it that means you move into their suffering we move into one another's suffering and help prop them up because they may not be able to handle it I've been there I know you have if you haven't you will you need others around you even if it's just a text or call or somebody gives you a hug on Sunday morning whatever it is Hopefully it's beyond those, those things. But we need others around us. Why? So important. If you're not in the journey, we've got three journey groups going this year. Get in a journey group, for goodness sakes. Get some people around you. Life will be different. Listen. Now, that some would seem to be working... Uh, I must do everything in my power to alleviate that suffering. Now that would seem to be working against this wonderful benefit. In other words, you're there trying to help them get out of this suffering, and, and Paul's saying, oh, no, no, suffering is good for you. See, that's not what he's saying. Paul is saying that God uses these things. He triumphs over them. I love this. He brings victory out of them. He adds them together for our greater, glo- for, for our greater glory. In other words, God redeems the evil that befalls us. You see, evil, think of the cross. The cross is evil. It is bad in and of itself. But out of that cross, He was able to take something horrific, apply that to horrific people that were trapped in their sin, and create something completely new. Redeeming the evil. Not just taking the evil and and using it. He redeems it. He does something good with it because He is good and when He touches you, He means good for you. The difference may be subtle. Nevertheless, it's the truth. Here's another commentator. God makes all things work together for good in our lives for ultimate good. Paul, listen, Paul accepts fully human free agency. Got to love that. 
But behind it all and through it all runs God's sovereignty. The apostle designates believers as not merely loving God, but being beloved by them. You see that word called, that means he loves you. He doesn't call you like, get over here, you naughty. You understand? Get over here, you. Or in Genesis 3, where are you? No, not that. He doesn't say, I see you hiding back there. No. Where are you? The sovereign God who knows everything and everybody and all the omnipotence and all that, omnipresent, omniscient, all of that has the love and compassion in His heart to say to humanity, where are you? Tender, loving, and that's all you hear. Once in a while he gets mad, but compare it to the rest of your Bible, it's like this much. Are you hearing what he's saying? It's, it's, It's beautiful. Life under God's eternity and sovereignty When you put that together with our present suffering and waiting for God, hoping, praying, there's got to be something else. When I die, do I just go in the ground and decompose? What is is meaning? Why do we even care about meaning? You can't get around it, folks. The image of God is still in us. It's alive. It's vibrant. It's pulsing like a heartbeat, demanding that you ask these questions. And so Paul uses some stunning, absolutely stunning um, language to describe it. This is what we're looking at. So verse 28 is saying that God is going to do this. He's a good God. He's going to work everything out for our benefit because He loves us and cares for us. He's called us. He's reached out to us. He's done everything. But we as human beings still must choose. Right? God doesn't choose for you. You choose. Now how that comes about is gets into some theology and we'll talk about it later, not now, but you need to understand that human beings have freedom of choice. The problem is they're not free to make those choices. Something else is present in fallen humanity that is that runs throughout all of our being. It's just there present. And it is speaking. It's saying something. It's not like we're just neutral. And Paul is going to get into this more and more, and this is why people think that uh, they're re- uh, people will say to me all the time when I mean I'm reformed. Hey, I'm reformed, and uh, or I, I'm I'm a Calvinist. Uh, I believe in predestination. Well, that big deal. Everybody believes in predestination. Everyone believes in predestination. The question is, how do you get there? Is it you doing it, or is it God doing it? And if God is doing it, is He just a puppet master with puppets on a string or what? What's going on? 
And so when you get into this, this is some deep water, but when you get into it, you need somebody like me who understands it completely, exhaustively. You need to talk to someone that really does understand it. Wherever, whatever side they're on, doesn't matter. Somebody that understands so that they can go through it. And I'll try to do some of that, but not today. Paul uses this stunning and descriptive language to to bring something out of us that we wouldn't otherwise know. So let's look at who we know. We looked at what we know. We know that he loves us, that everything's going to work together for good. He's called us. He he knew us. We've got to remember that, especially when when suffering comes. You you automatically think, he's forgotten me. I'm alone. Even Job did that. He's much better. He was a better Christian than you and I. That's a reality of being human. So he, Paul goes to who we know. And this is called, and many of you already know this, those of you that are really into theology, and I am, I mean, I gave my life to it, spending fortune to get a credential so that I could talk like this and say things like sanctification and justification and infralapsarianism. And supralapsarianism, which none of you know anything about. Even John Calvin was confused about those, right? All right, let's look real quickly at 29 through 30. Amazing. For God, this is called the, uh, what uh, Dr. Hendrickson calls the chain, God's chain of salvation, or other people know it in theology. It's called the Ordo Salutis or the Order of Salvation. It's the process through which God goes uh, in His eternal decrees, if you will, behind the curtain, behind the veil, something we're never, never going to be able to penetrate back there. But Paul is holding it out to you as a means of assurance. When you suffer, when you're being torn apart, by some evil suffering, we already looked at that, he's saying, listen, listen to these words, for God knew his people in advance. He chose them to become like his son, so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. You see, he's not just merely getting you out of your trouble. He's bringing you into His family, giving you His name, writing His name on your hand. He called, and having called, He gave right standing with Himself. Having given right standing, He gave them His glory. This is a literary device, a repetitive literary device that is, is used in Scripture to, be, to emphasize something. It's piling on. Having chosen, He called. Having called, He gave. Having given, He gave. He gave. What did He give? His Son. And He did all this so that we could be like His Son. Why? So that we can be in His family. We're we're part of the family. This is why you you cannot take sin lightly in your life. If you just say to yourself, oh well, I'm going to sin now and God will forgive me. Where in the world do you read that in your Bible? 
That is presumption. And don't think that he's got to forgive you. He doesn't have to forgive you. He doesn't have to forgive anybody. When you ask, are you asking because sin, you would look at sin and you go, no way, I, I hate this. I'm having a hard time with it, but I hate it. And I'm not going to give in to it. It brings me nothing but pain and heartache. Now, I've never met anybody that told me their sin brought them joy. Yes? No? Sin brings you joy? Somebody say no, please. No, it doesn't bring you joy. Sin just brings heartache. And if it brings any joy or happiness, it's only for a second. It's fleeting. And then it comes and it sucks the life out of you. Drains you. Hollows you out. And leaves nothing. And the only way to fill that back is to go to the fountain of life, the river of life, go and ask Jesus, oh my God, what, what was I thinking? Please help me. Amen? Okay. I'm getting a little lonely up here. Thank God you're here today, John. I'm feeling lonely. Give him the stare. The comp- you know how Presbyterians dance? I'm going to show you. Look carefully. (laughs) That's how they dance. Well, you know what John Calvin did on the Sabbath? Anybody know? No? He played Skittles. Do you know what Skittles are? Bowling. He went bowling on the Sabbath. That was a big thing on the Sabbath for Geneva. They would go and have worship and have communion and they'd go and they'd do lawn bowling, Skittles. People misunderstand John Calvin. It's it's really terrible. I'll help you. Okay, so after he does this, gives us this order of salvation, how God in, in a, a deep and rich and highly mysterious way, he comes into humanity and he does something only he can do. Then he asks these five questions. We'll look at them quick because we're going to finish early today. What shall we say about these things? Verse 31. Then he answers, God is for us. Who can be against us? He's talking about sovereign power, absolute, utter power. You can't mess around with sovereignty. You can't say that God is sovereign, but then He somehow limits His sovereignty to give humans some range of freedom. That is not what's going on. And I'll explain it later. God is either sovereign or He's not. There's no in-between. There's no partial sovereignty. He is absolutely, utterly sovereign. And he says, if he's for us, nothing can be against us. His power is that great. Then look at 32. Won't he, and this is where the the, uh, translation you have is not that good. The ESV is better. And so I'm going to read it to you the way it should be uh, written, but they left some stuff out. But it's good. Because this way you can understand to to study your Bible, you need to do a lot of work. Yes? You can't just casually look, oh, well, that's nice. You've got to spend some time thinking, thinking about it. Here it is. 
won't he, God, also with him, Jesus, graciously, I don't know why they left that out, give us everything or all things? Won't he do that? After what you've just heard, won't he do that? God, here's, here's the answer. God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. I say that every Sunday in the liturgy. What, what more can you give? I mean, it's mind-blowing, but how many Christians really sit down and think about that? He gave His Son. He did not spare. When His Son was begging to be spared in the garden, silence. God sent an angel just to comfort Him to still go through what He was going to go through. For goodness sakes, folks. This is the heartbeat of Christianity. He gave His Son. He did not spare Him. It should be with us. It should be so deep inside of us that when trouble and agony and heartache come and sin, that that you run to Jesus Christ, for goodness sakes. You run with all your might. You don't try to fix things. You run and you grab Him by the ankles and say, Save me! Again, again, again. Look at 33. Third question. Who dares accuse God? Uh, whom God has chosen for His own. Who dares accuse you? Why does He ask the question? Because we are constantly accusing ourselves and other people. Other people will come and criticize us, whether you're in business or in ministry or you're retired. It doesn't matter. There will be criticism and questions. People love to to, to get underneath and erode your security. And they, they do it. And then What? Who's going to accuse you? He says, no one. God Himself has given us right standing. He has built this foundation that you stand on. You don't let anything come in. Now, you may for a moment feel crushed, and I've been crushed, and you've been crushed, and we crush each other. We're all great at it. But sometime during all that, you better get back on that rock, on that foundation, or you'll sink. So every Sunday, I I plead with you, run to Jesus. Come to the table. Sing your heart out. Close your eyes to everybody else and sing your heart out. These are the means of grace. This is how you make it to the end, to the goal, to the finish line. Fourth question, who will condemn us? No one. Christ died for us. Again, the cross. And he was raised to life. He, he broke death's hold on humanity forever. The one thing we all fear, death. The one moment you will be utterly alone. There will be nobody there. None of your friends, family, companions. Nobody can step through that door with you. You will be alone. It's horrific to even think about it. I don't know how people live their lives with that in their mind. It should should scare us to death. And yet people, you know, somehow they get their heads around. I don't know. I can't. The older I get, the more I know that that, man, that's coming fast. Right? And finally, can anything separate us from God's love? Any trouble? And then he lists them. This is 
beautiful. Calamity and persecution and hunger and destitution and danger and death and we're killed all day long. We're slaughtered like sheep. He quotes uh, Psalm 44. No. Despite all these things, we have victory. We're more than conquerors. Why? Again, through Christ who loved us. Now, I'm going to stop there because I already went over the time. Folks, let me just speak to you from my heart. You've got to stop thinking about Jesus and the cross and your Christianity as this little thing over here on the side that you reach out and say, you know what, I think I need some, I think I need some gospel in my life. So you just kind of reach out. I think I need this Christianity thing so it can help me. That is not the Bible's Christianity. The Bible's Christianity brings you into a hard place, folks. It makes you look at yourself. It asks hard questions. Questions that should open our presuppositions about our life, who we are, what we are. And all of those questions are designed not to exclude. We see Calvinism and predestination, all that. We think immediately of exclusion. Well, it's only for us, the chosen, the elect, all of that good stuff. That isn't at all what it is. Election is all about inclusion. It's all about that, 100% about that. Who can we include, not exclude? As, as scholars have said for years, we are chosen, but we are in no way choice. There's nothing choice about us. I don't know why He chose me. I can't ever figure it out in my wildest dreams why He would even call me. Why would He bother with me? And why would He bother with you? Do you really think that heaven would not be heaven unless you're there? Come on, folks. Bow the knee to this great God who loves you this way. This, bow your knee. Will you do it? Will you trust Him? I hope so. Father, we thank you for your kindness and your glory, your goodness and your mercy that is forever. And while you did not, you were under no obligation to forgive anyone, you took all of that and put it on your son, the one that, the only one who ever lived that didn't deserve it. He got it for us. And I pray somehow, Father, please work this down into our lives. And now as we come to the table, feed us in our hearts by faith. Amen.